Welcome to today's episode of Focal Point. My name is Fardeen and today I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Sir Charles Bean. To those who may not know, he is currently a member of the Office for Budget Responsibility and a part-time professor of economics at LSE. He has also more famously worked at the Bank of England as an executive director, chief economist, and also as deputy governor for monetary policy. He's also served as president of the Royal Economic Society and holds a PhD in economics from MIT. So, Charlie, how have you been? Very well, thank you. Good to talk to you. Likewise. So, just for some of our listeners, could you tell us a bit about what your role consists of at the OBR? Well, first of all, listeners may not know quite what the Office of Budget Responsibility does. But it was created in 2010 to undertake the economic forecasts that underlie the budget each year and uh, generally to provide fiscal transparency, to assess whether the government's own fiscal rules uh, were on track to be met. We also do some longer run assessments of risk to the public finances. We're a pretty small operation, but I think it works pretty effectively and established itself as a useful addition to the policy making. Oh, that's great. Could you tell us a bit more about how the transition from a career in academia, because you were a member of the LSE faculty in the 90s, and how was it like transitioning from LSE to a career at the Bank of England? Well, I've had a relatively unusual career in that I've oscillated between policy making and academia. So I actually started out in the policy making world after I finished my undergraduate degree in Cambridge. I joined the Treasury and I was an economic forecaster there in the second half of the 70s. Then went off to MIT where I did my PhDs. Came back very briefly to the Treasury but then joined LSE in 1982. Throughout that time I still kept links with the policy world, so I was consultant to the Treasury a day a week during the 90s. Uh, started the week after Black Wednesday, purely coincidentally. And I'd always wanted to do a high-level policy-making role at some stage. So when I was approached by the, uh, the Bank of England in 2000 to go as their chief economist, which carried with it uh, a place on the Monetary Policy Committee. Uh, it wasn't very, a very difficult decision for me to say yes, and I ended up staying there 14 years, moving on to become Deputy Governor. And of course, it was a very interesting time to be there because my 14 years there spanned the period before the financial crisis and the period after it. Basically had seven years of feast followed by seven years of famine. When I went to the bank, I actually found that a lot of the people who were working for me were actually people I'd taught at LSE, including, as it happens, uh, our current director at LSE, Baroness, as she will be, Minouche Shafiq. Yeah. She was one of my first master's students, actually replaced me partly uh, at the Bank of England when I uh, retired from there in 2014. So speaking of policymaking, you mentioned in February that the UK productivity crisis is the biggest threat to British capitalism. You said it's a bigger threat than Brexit. So considering some of the new economic policies that have recently been mentioned, namely the Kickstarter scheme, what do you make of the prospects of British productivity now going into the future? 
Well, I think things like the kickstart scheme, you have to recognize are introduced as emergency measures to try and mitigate some of the economic costs of the pandemic and the health measures that's been taken to deal with that. The biggest single government program has been the job retention scheme, which has been paying 80% of workers' uh, wages. But the Chancellor has taken the view that now the economy is reopening. It's not appropriate to continue that so-called furlough scheme but recognises that there will nevertheless be some permanent changes to the way our economies function, less people going into central office buildings. So things like the Kickstart scheme are really designed to try and help particularly younger workers get into the job market. And one thing we know from past experience, I had done research uh, during the 80s and 90s on persistent unemployment, is how damaging sustained unemployment can be for people's subsequent life chances. Getting people into jobs quickly, particularly in the early stages of their working lives, actually really repays itself in the end. The kickstart scheme is actually modelled on a, a scheme that the Labour government introduced during the aftermath of the financial crisis. So it's very sensible. It doesn't really address this longer run question about how do we get productivity growth up. And it is very noticeable that productivity growth has flatlined since the financial crisis. It's not unique to the UK, which in many other countries. But it has meant that workers in general have seen their real income stagnating for the past decade or so. So you mentioned that the kickstart scheme is more of a short-term emergency measure, right? Yes, yes. So although it's a short-term measure, do you think it could potentially indicate a transition towards more long-term focus on productivity when it comes to policymaking in the UK? Well, I would certainly expect the government to um, have this pie on its agenda. We know some of the ingredients of what are required to try and get productivity growth up. That includes improving skills and education. And many people would take the view that the area that the UK has fallen down on has been on apprenticeship, technical skills, things like that. And kickstart fits into a programme of trying to improve our performance there. Um, there's evidence that management skills in the UK are not as good as they could be, so sharing best practice across businesses. Then things to improve innovation, and here there may well be a role for government to ensure the UK is well-placed in the industries of the future. That's certainly something that the government has interest in, some of the debate around state aid at the moment. That's great. So speaking more about the zeitgeist of our time, COVID-19, what do you think will be the three biggest long-term economic trends that the world will see post-COVID-19? Possibly the, the most significant consequence will be to raise people's questioning of market remuneration. For the last 20, 30 years since the Thatcher revolution, there's been very much the idea, let markets work, uh, reward people who work hard, innovate with high pay and so forth. 
But what we've seen, first of all, in the financial crisis, is that some of the most highly paid people uh, helped to, to crash the Western economies by, by their overlending in the, the financial sector. And then in the, the, re- the current crisis with COVID, what we've seen is that the key workers, the ones who've been most exposed to the, the virus and suffered higher mortality rates, have often been those who are less well rewarded. So I think you'll see a general questioning by electorates of relative values of different occupations. What we'll also see is some changes in the way work is organised. I think it's inevitable that uh, businesses will take the view, oh, we've seen that we can work in more flexible ways. And that will lead to changes in the, the structure, not only of businesses, but also in the, the way society is organised, the regional distribution of activity. If more people are working at home, then you get more demand for pret in the local town and less in the, the, the urban centres. On top of that, you shouldn't forget there are the challenges that are there and were there before the pandemic. First is the ageing population. And the other big challenge, of course, is climate change. And that requires coordinated international action. And was there anything that surprised you during COVID-19? Well, I mean, the sheer extent of the the pandemic, I think it's fair to say we were unprepared for. Uh, Funnily enough, at the Office of Budget Responsibility, when we did our last uh, so-called fiscal risks report, one of the issues that we flagged, although we didn't discuss it in depth, was a, a, a pandemic. And in retrospect, I wish we'd spent rather more time discuss it, but we actually put it on it, oh, let's do it in our next issue. But I think if we had done it, we would have had in mind a flu pandemic, which of course is what the government had been planning for, whereas SARS type pandemic requires rather different health responses. And the notion of shutting down completely an economy for a couple of months, I, I would never really have thought about The way the economy has responded to that, though, has actually been pretty much, uh, I think, as I would have expected. There's still open questions about how strongly the economy will bounce back. But there's a question about whether it will be maintained and how close we will get back to our previous uh, growth trajectory. And I think one of the consequences of COVID-19, which many have discussed, is the exacerbation of economic inequality, both on a national level, but also on an international level, as many have expressed doubts about developing nations in terms of how they're going to recover. What are your thoughts on rising debt across the developing world, which we were already seeing pre-pandemic? And what do you make of how they will recover economically in light of the coronavirus pandemic? In the UK, for instance, we've seen the debt-to-GDP ratio rise by 20 percentage points. So it's gone up from about 80% to around about 100% just in the first half of this year. And similar rises in the US and European partners and so forth. And that reflects the aggressive uh, support measures taken as well as the hit to tax revenues 
by closing down economies. Now, the support measures, things like the government's job retention scheme here, have had the effect of limiting the rise in inequality in this country, precisely because they've ensured most people keep on receiving an income. But I think there's a different set of issues in the developing world. Now, so far, the pandemic has been mainly a developed world phenomenon. Now, pivoting to the developing world, where they have less scope to, uh, to borrow freely on international capital markets. And it's why there's a strong push in some quarters for increased availability of support from bodies like the International Monetary Fund. Unfortunately, we're not in a, uh, a world where there's a lot of coordinated behavior at the international level, obviously with President uh, Trump in particular, who's rather skeptical of uh, multilateral action. Uh, but I think there is a good case for enhanced support for developing countries to help them fight the pandemic. The other thing that has to be said with developing countries is that it's not easy for them to shut down their economies. When you do that in poorer parts of the world, people starve. The pandemic, I think, is a real problem to handle in the, the poorer parts of the world. And that's why I think there's a strong moral case for the developed countries to provide enhanced support. And speaking of perhaps a bit more about the financial sector, what are your thoughts on the strong performance of the American stock market despite the weak economy, which we saw quite a lot during the second quarter of 2020? Well, one, one of the things I've learned being on the Monetary Policy Committee is that economists can display considerable ingenuity in explaining why asset prices have moved in a particular way, stock prices, exchange rates, whatever. And then the next month when we meet, it'll all have unwound. Uh, I have to say, often financial markets, it's really difficult to tell a story that survives. Now, in the case of the stock markets, you could argue quite reasonably, I guess, that the big collapse in late February was prompted by a realisation that the pandemic was not going to be confined just to the Southeast Asian countries like the previous SARS epidemic, but was generally going to be a worldwide threat and have major implications for industrialised world economies. That said, to the extent of the falls, stock markets fell by about 25%. You could say maybe that was overreacting, uh, but that partly reflects the uncertainty. As we move forward in time, then starting to reopen their economies, it's reasonable to see stock markets recovering. So even though economies are still depressed in the level of activity relative to where they were at the start of the year, you can see the stock markets moving ahead because they're looking at what's coming further down the line. Uh, the other thing is that central banks acted very aggressively back in uh, late February, early March in buying assets and propping up markets, not because they want to stop the asset holders losing money, but because they were worried about the financial stability and macroeconomic stability consequences if they didn't do that. But as far as investors are concerned, they've seen the signal that central banks will be there 
to support markets going forward, and that helps to underpin asset values. Having said that, I do find it surprising quite how strongly stock prices have recovered. Uh, just in the last few days, of course, we have seen them, particularly tech stocks. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's still relatively high volatility for some while to come. And is there anything related to economics or finance that you feel is not being talked about enough, perhaps within academia or within the media, etc.? Well, there are certainly issues to do with the interface between corporate governance and finance, which I think perhaps haven't had the attention they deserve. But I think there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that those sorts of remuneration packages can lead to excessively short-term behaviour by company management which is focused on taking actions which boost short-term profits and the share price at cost cutting and things like that. The other thing, finance markets generally, uh, one of the things, of course, that we've seen, uh, which partly led into the financial crisis, was the growth of entities which engaged in bank-like activity that weren't regulated as banks. Central banks and financial regulators need to be on the lookout continually for emerging areas of, of risk. Uh, this is territory where the regulator is continually running just to stand still, if you like. It requires eternal vigilance. As we draw to a close, do you have any advice for the target listener of Focal Point? So university students or sixth formers who are interested in economics and finance? Well, economics is a, a fascinating subject. I should say I'm a failed mathematician. I started out as a mathematician, dropped out after the first year when I could appreciate quantum mechanics. It was very beautiful, very elegant, but I had no idea what was going on. Economics has the, the appeal of application of logical analysis of unpicking how things work and how they interrelate, but it goes with applying that to the real world. What I would encourage all, keep that at the, the back of their mind, tease out the way people, institutions interact and how good policy design can lead to better outcomes. Well, thank you very much for joining us today on Focal Point. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing you talk and I know I've learned a lot. Thank you very much for the time and hope to keep in touch. You're welcome. Thank you.